Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Oh, that's awesome. I'm a big fan. Is that got the same thing on the other side? Yeah. It's funny that you guys will bring a liar into church. I don't know how far you had to look to find me in an Auburn shirt. It's clearly not honest, but yeah. Huh? Wow. I'm a little distracted now. But I'm impressed. Good try. Let's give them all a hand. <laughs> that is cool. That is cool. Hey, thank y'all for being here this morning. We are uh, in week number three of a series called Suit Up, uh, which is why our teenagers apparently have a, uh, a mat head, I mean a fat head of me. Um, and so uh, that was really cool. But we are, uh, we're working our way through Ephesians chapter six. And uh, if you have missed the last two weeks, maybe this is your first Sunday with us, maybe you're a guest here today. Um, I want you to go back online, discoverlifepoint.com, and catch up from the last two. Uh, but you've actually picked a perfect week to be here because the previous two messages are somewhat a setup message. In Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, actually gives us some very practical insight into how to best live our lives and best be prepared um, for the difficulty that is life. And, um, and the practical aspect of it kind of begins today um, as we begin to talk about the different aspects of what is referred to in Scripture as the armor of God. And um, to kind of give it a relevant spin, we have kind of compared this to a football game or to a football season, and we've called it suit up. Uh, I've never actually been to war. I've never been in a real battle, real fight, uh, like a military fight. Uh, but I did play football, and there are some similarities between what Paul is teaching us in terms of readiness and preparedness and, uh, and what one would experience on a football field. And so um, I'm excited about this morning's message because I think we kind of turn the page and begin to look at some very, very uh, practical stuff. So I want to pray and uh, maybe focus our attention a little bit. Thanks to our worship team this morning. Uh, both gatherings today have just been electric in terms of worshiping together. I, I so appreciate our worship team leading us. It's awesome to see a new face on the stage as well. Uh, but mostly thank you, family, uh, the, you know, our church family that just every week takes advantage of just having a few minutes to worship together. Thank you all so much. This morning was a lot of fun. Let's pray, and we'll jump into the message. God, thank you so much for who you are um, Lord, as we just kind of quiet our minds and our attention this morning, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would clear our hearts and our minds in such a way that, um, that we'd be able to hear your word and what you want to teach us and what you want to say to us, and then give us the uh, courage and the equipping to apply what it is that you say to us today. Um, Lord, we, we do want to stand firm, and so we pray that you would show us how to be better prepared to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you know, it doesn't take much, it doesn't take long, it doesn't take a lot of effort to realize that this world is somewhat, I guess the best way to describe it is just kind of gone crazy, uh, which is interesting when I get around people who are the generation older than me, uh, it seems like they love to mention that to me, you know, like this world has gone crazy with y'all, and I'm kind of like, well, I mean, y'all had a little to do with it too, um, you know, because we've been going crazy for a long time now. Uh, in, in fact, it's, uh, it's, it's astounding to me. You, you can turn on Facebook, you can get on Twitter or X, whatever that's called now, jump on any form of social media, pick up a newspaper if those exist, I think they still do, uh, pick up a newspaper, turn on the news, and very quickly what you'll find is there is just a lot going on in this world that is just, 
I mean, I don't know how to say it any other way. It's astounding. It is, it is scary in some ways. It is, um, it, it is obnoxious in other ways. Uh, for instance, I, I know many of you have been keeping up with the uh, Hamas-Israeli war, uh, and, and it's not as though we didn't already know this, but the, the evil that is prevalent today, and maybe it's not that there is any more prevalent than it's ever been. Maybe it's just more possible for us to see it because of the amount of access that we have to the world uh, through the Internet. Um, but it just astounds me as I watch that to realize that there are people on planet Earth who will wake up one morning and decide to invade a music festival and just just massacre people. I mean, the, the fact that it would be in somebody's mind. Like, I, I cannot fathom a person who wakes up one morning and says, I know what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go kick in the door at some residence where I'm going to take a mom and a baby hostage. And then perhaps if, it, if I just decide it makes sense to me or I want to do it, I'll I'll set a baby on fire. I mean, that is an evil that I can't even really fathom. I can't even imagine it, just to be really honest with you. I, I, it's just something I can't even wrap my head around. And while I can't understand that level of, of, of evil, I do have an understanding of where that finds its derivative. Uh, I am fully aware of what got that type mentality, that type depravity, I'm very aware of where that started. And what I want to do is I want to take you back to the point where that started this morning. And I want you to see a narrative that's found in the very beginning of time. We find it in the pages of scripture. And it's, it's about the very beginning of time in a book called The Beginnings. In a book called Genesis that you find the very first book of your Bible. Uh, the word Genesis actually means beginning. And in the book of Beginnings, uh, we find a very interesting narrative that begins to unfold. In Genesis chapter 1, this God of the universe, it begins, the, 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 the book of Genesis, the Bible itself begins with in the beginning God. And so in the very beginning there was God. And God created the heavens and the earth is what we are told in Genesis chapter 1. And what we begin to find is this incredibly beautiful, even somewhat poetic, uh, very descriptive nature of how God speaks everything into creation. And if you just read it and you don't imagine it, it may feel so, sort of dull and boring. But as you begin to think about it, what you see is you see an artist. You see a creative master that, that is creating a masterpiece. And, and he begins to do these remarkable things to create the landscape of life as we know it. We see where he creates the, the light and he separates it from the darkness. And the, he calls the light day and he calls the dark night. We see where he creates the heavens and the earth and the, the, the seas and the oceans and the rivers and the streams and the mountains and the prairies, the plants and the animals, the fish of the sea, birds of the air. And, and day by day, he, he just adds to the tapestry of this landscape, this just aspect of beauty that, that becomes just the miraculous that we take for granted, right? I mean, every day as you wake up, the, the, I imagine there's seldom times that you walk outside and go, this is just remarkable and amazing, but the, the, the truth is that it is. I mean, to think about this God of the universe, to be so creative and so imaginative that this astounding display of all becomes common to us is just speaks to his brilliance, that we would walk outside and we would see a mountain and not be struck in awe by the beauty of a mountain, or we'd stand on top of a mountain and view the valley and not find ourselves speechless, or to stand on an o at a beach and look at the ocean and not be overwhelmed by its magnitude, speaks to the brilliance of this God that created all of this stuff, 
And it was so, and now it has become so common that the astounding has become common. It's just amazing. It actually speaks to his creative genius. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see where he does that. Genesis chapter 2, he abandons the process a little bit. And instead of speaking into existence, he begins to mold into existence. As he, desires, as he makes the decision to make humanity in his image. And rather than saying, let there be man, he actually takes the dust of the earth and begins to mold it into humanity. And he creates the first man and names him Adam. And he places him in the middle of this garden that he's created. And very quickly after that, he, the only thing he says is not good about his creation is that it was not good that man should be alone. Every woman has been agreeing with that since that very time. And, and he, so he, he, put, he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He takes a rib from his side and he makes woman. Again, doesn't speak her into existence. He takes the time and the effort and the energy to do something very different with humanity than he did with all of the creation. And he forms man and woman instead of speaking it into existence. And I think the reason that he does that is because there's something special about humanity. We are the image bearers of God. We are the reflectors of the divine. And because we reflect the divine nature of God and the divine aspects of God, because there's a part of us that is not at all divine, that we are, we are severely lacking, we fall way short of God's glory, yet we are like the moon, what the moon is to the sun. We reflect his glory. We reflect his brilliance. And so he makes us, he forms us instead of creating us. And he sets man and woman in the garden. He says, I want you to have dominion. Which means I want you to have authority. I want you to have rule. I want you to have reign. Again, very similar to how God is the one who rules and reigns. He, in an effort to reflect his glory, he allows us to have responsibility under his headship and under his lordship to have this rule and this reign in the garden. And he provides everything that's necessary for sustenance and provision and even satisfaction. You know, one of the most incredible things about God and his design of humanity, and maybe you'll think about this every time, is that God gave you taste buds. And you may think, why is that so remarkable? Well, it reminds us that God is not just the God who is trying to take care of our needs, but in taking care of our needs, he even provides for us to have enjoyment. He could have just given us no taste buds, and then all of us could have eaten broccoli and been healthy and not had a problem with it, right? I mean, he could have, but instead he's like, no, I want you to enjoy the broccoli that tastes so wonderful. I do like it, but you may not. But he gives us that because God is not just interested in our provision, he is interested in our satisfaction as well. He is interested in our, even our pleasure. And he places man and woman in the middle of the garden. He says, here's everything you need. Everything that you need for life and satisfaction and purpose. I mean, he gives Adam a woman to love. He gives him a work to accomplish. He gives him the capability around to enjoy life and everything that he needs to experience life and life to the full is in the garden. And then he says, but one more thing, one more thing. There's a tree in the middle of the garden. It's the only one you can't have the fruit of. You can eat of anything else in the garden, but you can't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Because I think, and I think the reason for that is, is that everything that he spoke into existence had no option but to reflect 
and put on display the, the glory of God. The sun can't say, today I'm not going to shine. The moon doesn't get the option to say, today I'm not going to reflect. The water doesn't get to say, today I'm not going to be water. No, instead, the trees are trees and they produce when God says produce. The plants are plants. They provide fruit when they're told to provide fruit. The fish act like fish and the beast of the field act like the beast of the field with no option. But the, but the image bearers, well, he gave them an option. And honestly, he gave them an unfair option. You say, what? Well, sure, there's one you can't have and there's an abundance of what you can have. It was unfair to our advantage. We got the good end of that deal. You can have all of this, but stay away from this one tree. You don't have to stay away from the tree. Just stay away from the fruit of the tree. Don't eat the fruit. And everything was good for two chapters. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, everything's great. Now, I don't know how long Genesis 1 and 2 last. I don't know if it's a year. I don't know if it's a, a decade. I don't know if it's a week. I don't know if it's a millennia. I have no idea how long it lasts. I have no idea. But in chapter 3, everything begins to change. And it changes with an introduction to a character of Scripture that we had not seen prior to this. As the snake crawls into the garden or creeps into the garden. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Such an interesting question, right? The snake creeps into the garden. Had to already be weird, by the way. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. It would be weird to me. You know, I'm in the garden hanging out with my wife. And suddenly a a snake crawls in. Maybe that wasn't weird. Got to be weird when it starts talking. I'm just saying. Got to be weird at that point. All right? Got to be weird. Starts, crawl, starts talking. Apparently at this point, I don't think snakes crawled on the ground on their bellies because later on he gets banished to his belly. So it's also weird that we apparently got a, a snake with legs talking. Probably weird, right? Probably weird. But what's insightful is the question that the enemy asks. The enemy asks from the very beginning, did God actually say? Did God actually say, That you can't eat of any tree in the garden. Now, why would he ask that question? He already knew the answer. In fact, let me remind you that our enemy, Scripture calls him a roaring lion. His best depicted throughout Scripture is the father of lies. He is a master manipulator. When he asks a question, there's probably more to the question than what we originally think he's asking. And when he asks this question, he's not asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. He's not asking this question because he knows that what he's asking is wrong. He's asking this question for one simple little reason is the, the father of lies always has the intent of doing this, to initially cause you to doubt God. This was not the enemy seeking clarification The enemy wasn't crawling around in some other garden going, you know what I've been wondering? I can't figure out why God's not letting Adam and Eve eat of all them trees. He did not care. Had nothing to do with clarity and information. It had to do with doubt and manipulation. All of a sudden goes, did God really say that? 
I mean, he really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And the same method that he's using to create doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve is the very same tactic he's using today to create doubt in your mind when he says, does God really expect you to fill in the blank? I mean, it's 2023. Does God really think that you ought to have purity in relationships? I mean, come on. Who does that in 2023? Does God really expect you to be entirely truthful? I mean, how do you expect to make a living as a salesman if you're entirely true all the time? I mean, does God really expect you to not gossip? I mean, come on. We have social media for crying out loud. That is the best tool for gossip. Does God really not want you to do that? And down and throughout the list, the enemy continues to ask the question, to wedge a thought in your mind that causes you to, for a moment, doubt God. Because see, he asked her, does, does God really, did God really say that you couldn't eat of anything in the garden? Now, we know God didn't say that. God says, you can have all of this, just stay away from this. But the enemy comes in and goes, did God really expect you not to even eat of anything in the garden? And Eve goes, no, 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 that's not what God says. The woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So they, no, no, we can do that. We can eat of those. But you begin to see where her doubt is peaked just a little bit because she then follows it up. She could have just stopped there. No, that ain't what God said at all. Get out of here. Could have looked at the snake. Said, hey, I don't want any walking serpents in the garden. Get out. Get to getting. Kick rocks. Now while you can. You got feet. Could have said, that's not what God said, leave. But you see where the doubt begins to take place in her mind because she wants to follow it up. She says, no, God, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Still true. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, where does she come up with that? Nowhere in Genesis 1 or 2 do we find where God tells them they can't touch the tree. We don't say that anywhere. Now, I suppose hypothetically God may have said it and just decided to leave it out of the narrative in Genesis. I doubt that to be the case. Maybe Moses forgot to write it down when he was recording the book of Genesis. I kind of doubt that. I think it's more likely that he didn't say it at all. But the little bit of doubt that the serpent put in her mind, suddenly she's going, oh, no, we, God didn't say, God said we couldn't eat it. We can't even touch it. Can't even get nowhere around it. Probably shouldn't even look at it. Don't Definitely don't smell of it. That'd be terrible. Suddenly she has turned God into a restrictive dictator instead of a benevolent provider. The doubt that the enemy puts in her head transitions her from look at all we can have to look what he won't let me look at and touch. It's the same thing that the enemy does in your life. Comes in and says, does God really expect you this? I mean, look at all the fun he's trying to keep you from. I mean, that was probably good for your great-great-grandparents' generation, but I mean, that's not relevant today. 
I mean, who really lives that way anymore anyway? I mean, did God really even say that? I mean, he was, if he did say that, he wasn't really talking to you. But let me tell you what I have learned is that we are all the exceptions to every rule. Well, I mean, nobody else could do that and maintain, but I can, right? Because we, we, we think we're the exceptions. No, no, no. The doubt that he begins to put in our minds turns into distortion in the way that we view God. What was a clear picture? Here's everything you need for life and life to the full turns into, why would God keep me from having this one thing I really want? I mean, he must not be very fair. In fact, after she gives a response, the enemy very quickly moves from doubt to look what he says next. He goes, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He goes from creating doubt in Eve's mind to causing, to, to saying to, to Eve, you, don't only, you shouldn't only be doubtful. I'm going to deny that what God says is even true. And he wants us to move from doubting God to denying God because if we can get to the place where we doubt God's goodness, we deny the principles that God lays out in Scripture, the next thing we know is we will move right into disobedience. He says, you're not going to die. He says, in fact, in fact, this is much bigger than you think. This is not just about eating a piece of fruit, Eve. God's keeping something from you. Because here's what he's doing. He's telling you not to eat that because he knows. He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like him. Actually, I think one of the things it says there is you'll be like the gods. You'll be, you'll be like God. I mean, you'll be, you'll, you'll be better than you've ever imagined. You'll, you'll have reached a different level. You will know good. And you only know good right now. And, you know, here's the crazy thing. As the enemy tries to cause you to doubt, deny, disbelieve, and disobey, let me tell you what happens, what he does. In that process, he often tells part of the truth. There's some element of truth to this. You know what God did know? God does know. He does have the, 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 he doesn't know it experientially, but he knows it intellectually. He knows what evil is. He knows the price of evil. At this point in time, all Adam and Eve knew was good. In fact, let me tell you how good they had it and how good they knew it. This is Adam and Eve, the only two perfect humans that we've ever known. Living in the only perfect place that we've ever read about who got to walk with God in the cool of the day, got to hang out arm in arm with God, tell him a dad joke that morning if he wanted to, had intimate knowledge of who God was. They knew good at the best possible way. And, they were ab- and the enemy is absolutely true, is absolutely honest here, that what God didn't want was for them to know evil. It's 100% true that God did not want them to know evil because for them to know evil meant they had to experience evil. And when Adam and Eve threw the rock into the river, the ripple effect of that is still affecting us today because the depths of their depravity would never be understood because of the way the enemy painted the picture. But because of the decisions they made that day that began with doubt and led to a denial of who God was, and eventually became disobedience. The result was depravity. 
And the result is that we get up in the morning and we turn on the TV or open up YouTube or read Facebook and we find the horrific acts of humankind around the world that do things that we can't even begin to imagine happen that all began with, did God really say? Is that something God would really expect? And I think it was from that perspective that the Apostle Paul, in writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, would pin the words that go like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not pull up your bootstraps. Not turn over a new leaf. Not make another resolution. Not be a little more disciplined and stop doing things you shouldn't do and start doing the things you ought to do. Not be, hey, you, not, not, you ought to be a better person. No, no, no. I think it was Paul writing, understanding the power of the enemy and the power of doubt in our life, the power of denying God in our life, that he goes, hey, you will not do this on your own. In fact, you can't do it at all. You better be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, I think some of us are persuaded that we have the ability to strike fear in the heart of the enemy. You do not. This is the enemy who had the audacity to crawl into a perfect garden with two perfect people who walked with God in the cool of the day and still was able to convince them that God wasn't who he said he was. He is not concerned about you and I. And it's why Paul says, you be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And I think as Paul wrote the schemes of the devil, he probably thought back to Genesis chapter 3. For we watch an enemy who had definitely done his homework on humanity. And he had recognized the weakness of their game plan and said, I know what to do. I can begin with doubt. I can get them to doubt who God is and eventually I can get them to deny the things that he says so that they'll begin to disbelieve. And so Paul says, you better put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because our fight is not with flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you missed last week's message, please go watch that. So you're not fighting with one another. You're game planning for the wrong enemy if you're doing that. But your fight is with the one who's willing to crawl into a garden and manipulate the people who knew God best. And he wants to do the same thing in your life. He wants to sow doubt in your life that will lead to disobedience. And if you're going to protect yourself, you better be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God because you're not fighting a normal enemy. And then Paul begins to give us the practical steps on how to do that. He says it this way, therefore, take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. He, he lists some other armor. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
In the following verses, he'll talk about the sword of the Spirit, and he'll talk about the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. He'll talk about the importance of prayer. But the first thing that Paul says that we do to defend ourselves against the enemy, the cosmic powers of the universe and the rulers and the authorities, he said the first thing you do is you fasten on the belt of truth. Now, that's interesting to me. I'll, I'll be honest, it's interesting. Again, as I said earlier, I, I've never been to war. I've never been to a battle. I'm thankful for those of you who serve in our military and have fought on behalf of this country. Thank you so much. I've never done that. I've never put on fatigues or any kind of military equipment. I have never been a Roman soldier that Paul was likely referring to when he wrote this. Uh, the closest thing I've ever done to a fight in a, in a, in a battle is, is, is playing a game of football. It's the closest thing to war that's legal. Um, and, and, you know, that, that they'll let people do. And, uh, and it's especially true in the game of football that I play because I played for White Plains High School in Calhoun County, Alabama, uh, where we just didn't win at football ever. Uh, in fact, we won one game my senior year. Raglan forfeited. They didn't have enough people to play, and we got to count that as a win. Oddly enough, it was a bye week, and I felt like bye whooped us up that week too, so I don't even know if we really won. And so we were terrible. And every game felt like abuse, and, and I want to tell you, there was never a day, there was never a Friday that I was sitting in, in the locker room at my spot in the locker room in front of my locker, getting ready to go play on a Friday night at 7 o'clock. There was never a time when I'm like, you know what? I just don't think I'm going to wear my helmet today. Never a thought. In fact, I remember being in a game one time and two people got in a fight. And the first thing they did was took off their helmets. I remember looking going, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like if I'm getting in a fight and you start pulling off your helmet, I'm in. Game on. I feel like I got a shot. They just both took it off. I'm like, what are you doing? Like at never a point. I thought, you know what I could do is I could play this game without a helmet. Never had that. There's never a time I'm like, I'm not going to put on shoulder pads today. I'm just kind of tired of them. No, nope, never a thought. Never a time when I was like, I think what I could do today is not have cleats. But I will tell you this. If it was ever a piece of equipment that I could have done without, it was the belt. It just didn't really seem like it was that important. The pants that we wore had shoestrings. You could tie them up just doesn't seem like this most incredible piece of equipment to me but it's because I wasn't a Roman soldier you see if you were to look at a Roman soldier chances are you probably wouldn't find a lot of significance in their belt either in fact it might even look a somewhat decorative somewhat aesthetic I mean after all everybody's aware of the sword people know the shield I mean that thing's awesome Helmet, that big furry thing on top. Who doesn't want one of those? Big shiny breastplate. But not many people would have blogged about the belt. I mean, it's just a belt, unless you were the soldier. You see, if you were the soldier, what you would have known is that the belt was incredibly important. Not because it won any battle, but because it freed you to fight the battle. You say, how so, Matt? Well, you see, in that day and time, they, they didn't wear football pants that fit real tight like spandex that had a shoestring that held them up. Instead, they wore a cloak. You know, it was kind of like a dress. I mean, imagine trying to fight in a dress. So they put a belt on around the cloak under the breastplate of righteousness, or the breastplate, not of righteousness, just the breastplate. They put on a belt. And perhaps they would hang their sword and a sheath that was on that belt, and it certainly 
provided that, or maybe there was a knife on the other side. But as they put the belt on, this is what they were doing. They were readying themselves for battle. Because by putting the belt on, they knew that when I get into the middle of the war, when I get into the middle of the fight, I'm going to reach down and take my cloak, and I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to tuck it into my belt. And it's going to free my legs for battle. And I'm going to be able to defend myself with the shield and the helmet and the, and the breastplate. And I'm going to be able to fight with the sword because the belt has prepared me for the battle. The belt has made sure that every other aspect of this armor is effective. The belt ensures that I'm ready to walk out to the battlefield. Without it, I'm hindered. Without it, I'm going to be ineffective. He said, well, what does that have to do with truth? Well, it has everything to do with truth. You see, in the world we live in, it almost feels like it's just all that not that important anymore. I mean, after all, what's true for you might not be true for me, and what's true for me might not be true for you. I hear that all the time. Well, just live your truth, Matt. Let me live mine. Well, that's just the problem. It's either truth or it's not. Truth is really not relative. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. You can go down here to the River Bridge in Gunnersville, climb up on the side of it. It really doesn't matter if you believe that gravity is true. If you jump off of that, gravity doesn't care what you think about it. You can jump off and be like, I think gravity is stupid. Gravity will be like, okay, the world knows you're stupid. Because, <laughs> thank you. I was waiting on that. <laughs> because truth has nothing to do with your feelings. Truth has nothing to do with your experience. Truth has everything to do with principle. It's why the enemy tries to get you to doubt the one who is truth. You see, when Jesus was speaking of himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is, is standard. It means this is the standard. This is, this is what marks right. This is the bullseye. Jesus said, I'm truth. I'm truth. I'm where you find life. I'm the way to heaven, but I am truth. And when we fasten tightly our belt of truth, what we are saying is we are prepared for the battle because we know in the battle what the enemy is going to attempt to do is distort what? The truth. You won't know that the truth is distorted if you don't know what the truth is. He get you to doubt it. Is it really? Here, here's the way. Here's the way that I hear it in my head. Is it really that big a deal, Matt? If you fill in the blank. Is anybody really going to get hurt? Will anybody even know? Does it really even matter? And if your belt is not fastened tightly, if your life is not prepared for the battle by knowing the truth, then just like Adam and Eve, we find ourselves going, well, no, I mean, God, did, God wouldn't say that. I mean, we're not supposed to do this. But I mean, and the next thing you know, you're questioning not just God, but you're questioning, is he good? Is he right? Does he care? Does it matter? Will anybody really get hurt? 
and suddenly you're pulling the trigger and throwing the rock into the river, totally unaware as to how far the ripples are going to go. You see, there's a spiritual battle. And it's not with flesh and blood, it's with powers and principalities. And this enemy that we're fighting is a roaring lion that seeks to devour you. And we're treating like a house cat that we can be entertained by. I suppose I was going to give you a bottom line this morning, I intend to. I I would say it this way. What we believe is true determines what we do. What we believe is true determines what we do. Let me give you this in a very practical sense. Let's say that you pulled up into the church parking lot today and you found your favorite parking spot and you got out and you locked the doors. And as you was walking away from your car, you heard this sound. It sounded like this. Like I saw it. I don't think my car is supposed to make that noise. You began to look and you notice that a tire is starting to deflate on your car. And you say to yourself, I believe that tire has a hole in it. That'll affect what you do this afternoon. Because you'll probably be sitting in here going, I don't know how I'm getting home. I'm going to have to put a spare tire on there. I'm going to have to get this repaired. Because what you believe to be true determines what you do. The reason that we have to be prepared for battle and ready ourselves with the belt of truth is because what we believe is true determines what we do. Is that really true, Matt? Well, let me finish the story from Genesis chapter 3. You remember, did God really say? And she's like, God didn't say that. God said that in the day we eat of it, we will die. We can't touch it. The day we eat, we'll die. And the enemy said, that's not true. You will surely not die. Instead, you'll be like God. You'll know good and you'll know evil. And Eve went, Eve and Adam went from doubting God to denying the truth. Well, maybe, maybe this walking snake's got a point. I mean, I guess God probably is keeping something from us. Instead of seeing all that he had given, they looked at what he restricted. And instead of saying, God has restricted this for my good, they say, he's trying to keep something from me. And they allowed the belt of truth to be loosened from their waist. And they begin to believe something that wasn't true. And look what happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The least of their problems that day was that they were both naked and had to sew fig leaves. What really happened is because of their doubt and their denial that led to their disbelief, they started a process of depravity that today we recognize it's people walking into homes and kidnapping women and children and setting babies on fire. And you say, man, I'd never get to that point. Hmm. Maybe you wouldn't. But Scripture says this about me and you. 
that all we like sheep have gone astray and we have each turned to our own way. And the depravity of your life resulted in the need for the God who loved you more than you can imagine having to slaughter his own son for your redemption. And today he says, when you gave your life to me, you set yourself in opposition to the enemy of this world who desires to devour you. And he is the father of lies. He will deny my existence. He will cause you to doubt my goodness. And he will paint a picture that his way is better than my way. So here's what you better do. You better fasten tightly the belt of truth. Because the only protection you have against a lie is the truth. And you fasten it up tight. And you ready yourself for the battle because the fight's coming. And you remember this. That what you believe to be true will determine what you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. That even though we denied you, doubted you, denied you, and disobeyed you, you still sent your son to redeem us. God, keep us reminded that our belief ensures that we are going to be in a fight. But what we believe to be true will determine what we do. Help us to tether our lives to truth, to fasten the belt of truth, to be prepared for the fight, to be prepared for the battle, to be readied for the battle. God, more than anything else this morning, may the name of Jesus be exalted in this place. Remind us of your goodness.